I'm David Pluff. And I'm Steve Schmidt. And this is Battleground, a podcast from The Recount. In a few minutes, we're going to be joined by Dave Wasserman, one of the smartest and most insightful journalists in politics today. I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with his work. We're going to go deep into battlegrounds across the country with Dave and the battle for the Senate. But Steve, before we talk to Dave, let's talk about some of the just absolute off-the-hook insanity we've seen in the past week. You know, this is the week where the whole country said, holy shit, we got a reality show imbecile in the White House. This week began with a plot to kidnap the governor of Michigan and give her some type of militia trial before they executed her in the woods. And these are the people, right, you know, that Trump praised, who stormed the Michigan state capitol with long guns. Yeah, he said, liberate Michigan. Liberate Michigan. Not a subtle message. It's like a standby to the Proud Boys. And six whack jobs took him up on it. And now people object when you hold him responsible for inciting this insanity and mayhem. Of course, he's responsible. So it's all going down. He's taking the Senate down with him. And good, good. I mean, but it's going to be a crazy month and we're going to see crazier and crazier behavior out of him and his allies. Yeah, he's clearly not well. No. I mean, you know, neither of us are medical doctors, but you, I, I actually listened to the Sean Hannity interview. He's coughing. He's making no sense. He's delusional. And like he's in the close of a presidential election. You and I have both run a lot of races. OK, we've won some, we've lost. Some. But, you know, it offends me as a practitioner. Right. I mean, this is the time of a campaign where you have to be your best. The campaign, the candidate, the entire ecosystem. And listen, his campaign's a disaster. They've blown through a billion dollars. They clearly don't, you know, speak truth to power. But, you know, they're not all idiots. Okay, they must be telling him, man, like the drug ads on the South Lawn, they're a disaster. You know, talking about conspiracy theories, you know, he actually attacked Gretchen Whitmer, the governor of Michigan, rather than just offering sympathy. So clearly people are saying, dude, you're a fucking, you know, disaster. We're heading towards a disaster. The walls are crumbling, but he doesn't give a shit. You know, as you know, I'm sitting here the last week, you know, with a bunch of my COVID positive kids in the house and you're watching the TV as he's talking about what a great job he's done managing all this. And you you just want to fucking scream. Yeah. Right. You just want to scream. And, um, he's going down and that's good news. Well, you're living through it. Unfortunately, all your kids are, are going to be okay. But yeah, I think so many people in your case, you had, you know, four kids under your roof. People have aunts and uncles or friends who've either died or have it seriously. And his approach here is almost like he calls it a blessing from God that he got it. Like, I'm glad I got it. You know, don't worry about it. You know, these special drugs that I got as president of the United States, I'll give them to everybody and it'll be free. I think people are like, fuck you. Okay, you were reckless with the country. You're holding these super spreader events. By the way, now we see the White House chief of staff against rules in Georgia had this massive wedding with his daughter. You see all these pictures, people hugging. And, you know, he's almost gleeful that he got it. And to me, it is the most puzzling way to end a presidential campaign we've ever seen in American history. If it's a uh, divinely inspired infection, it's inspired by Columbus, the Greek Greek god of stupidity, and uh, couldn't have been more reckless. The recklessness is just extraordinary. And, you know, and we were talking about the campaign. Listen, the campaign manager is infected and, you know, this makes people sick. He may not be able to sit up in bed. I don't know. 
the campaign is decapitated. The staff doesn't want to go into work. People are really legitimately angry. You know, we're hearing from a lot of them at the Lincoln Project. People are scared. There's a lot of people that I think it's dawning on them that it's going to be very, very difficult having the Trump administration on your resume and getting a job in a lot of places for people that are involved in, you know, communications. A lot of people wind up in big public relations firms, in advertising firms, tech companies. Uh, These people aren't going to be hired by any of these companies. There'll be a revolt internally uh, because they were involved in doing terrible things to the country. Right. Let me ask you a question. I'm sure you saw this when Mitch McConnell was asked if he went to the White House. He gave a fascinating answer, quite a cold answer and a clear answer, which is, no, I haven't been there in many months. And basically said, because I don't feel safe. I mean, the question is, People are going to publicly run away from Trump, but it seems to me you're starting to see some in Congress, you mentioned even some in the White House, who understand where this is going. And, you know, as you know, in politics, if somebody thinks you're going to be dead, you know, they move on from you as quick as you've ever seen anything in the world. So talk about that dynamic a little bit. Seems like for the Senate Republicans, you're going to start to see more and more of them just say, you know, I'm done with Trump. We've got to try and somehow preserve our majority. And even if we lose it, you know, keep it to 47 or 48 as opposed to 45 or 46. Yeah, look, I think it's too late. Yeah. I think the craziest conversation you hear is like, is the Senate Republicans are about to peel off Trump. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> it is what? Yeah. You know, it's October. It's, it's too late. You're going down with the ship. And the amazing thing about it, and I'll never understand this, Mitch McConnell is a savvy guy. He's no dummy. The history books, I I suppose, will tell us why he didn't go down to the Oval Office, close the door with one or two other senior Republicans three years ago and explain to Trump how it works and and essentially tell Trump that it was he, Mitch McConnell, who had Trump by the balls and not the other way around. And when you think about Mitch McConnell, right, he's gotten a lot of judges confirmed for sure. And I wonder if they think that getting that number of judges was worth driving the Republican Party at 300 miles an hour into the brick wall and, and just destroying it, destroying it. Well, and McConnell, having been on the other side of McConnell, he's a stone cold killer. And that's why he frustrates Democrats so much. He always knows where his votes are. He's got the constitution of a boulder that's been sitting on a mountain for 3000 years. He just doesn't give a shit about the outside noise. And so he could have done it. Well, Steve, I could talk to you about all this insanity all day long, and we often do. But let's bring in Dave Wasserman, House editor of the Cook Political Report. In 2016, he actually was ahead of the curve, wrote an incredibly prescient piece called How Trump Could Win the White House While Losing the Popular Vote. It was actually published a full two months before Election Day. He's one of the nation's top election forecasters, someone that Steve and I both rely on daily for uh, news and data and perspective. Loved your New York Times op-ed this week that gave us all the 10 counties we need to pay attention to. Welcome to Battleground. Thanks for having me. And likewise, I rely on you guys. Hey, Dave, good to have you with us. We look forward to getting into all these races and learning some from your expertise here. Absolutely. It's a thrill. I've uh, been a fan for a long time. So thanks for what you do. Well, let's get into it. We're eager to go state by state, but I just want to start with what you're seeing right now in terms of the polls and the data you have access to. Tell us Is there a Trump pathway? And if so, what does it look like for him to get the 270? As you probably know, I've covered House races for the Cook Report for the last 13 years. And one thing I love about 
house races and why I've been reluctant to give up this job is that I probably get to see more polling on the presidential race than just about anyone because we're looking at over 60 competitive congressional districts in you know a usual presidential cycle. And I remember at this point in 16, there was something I called the shift underway. You know, we had been tracking competitive congressional races in Pennsylvania, in Michigan, in Wisconsin, upstate New York, all places that kind of fit the same demographic characteristics. And in September, Democrats had been competitive in northern Wisconsin. They had been competitive in some of the, you know, the, the, um, southern tier of upstate New York kind of districts. And in October, we noticed something starting to shift where all of a sudden Trump leads that had been five points were 15 points. And Democrats were beginning to spend less in those types of districts and move their money into the suburbs. And although those places weren't really showing up in some of the statewide polls, the trend was evident at the district level. Well, fast forward to 2020 and the pattern that I'm seeing across the battleground of congressional districts is very consistent. In fact, startlingly consistent between the two parties. Trump is trailing his 2016 margins between five and 10 points in most places. In many of the high education, high college, high income suburban districts, Trump is trailing his 2016 margins by more than 10 points. In fact, in some places, closer to 15 points. The only exception is uh, in heavily Latino districts, we're seeing Trump uh, come close to, or in some cases, exceed his 2016 numbers. And those are places like Texas 23 or the Miami districts. And so it fits with the national pattern that we're seeing in polling of maybe a slight, uh, slight overperformance for Trump among Hispanic voters, but Democrats really pushing past historical thresholds in the suburbs. And I, I think the, the pattern is especially acute in what I would call second order suburbs, which are places that are outside of traditionally Republican metro areas that did not flip blue in 2018, but where Trump's standing today is a bit lower than it was in 2016. So these are the suburbs of Cincinnati, Omaha, Indianapolis, St. Louis, Phoenix, San Antonio. These are all places where Trump's numbers are really in the gutter and threatening to wreck Republicans in down ballot races. One ray of hope for Trump, if we're you know, really looking hard for one, is some of the registration data we've seen. It's clear that registration numbers are down from where they were in 16 across the board, but that they're disproportionately down among Democratic-leaning populations like college students, where it's been harder, frankly, to engage in in-person registration. And so in the past six months, we've seen in Arizona, Florida, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Cumulatively, there have been an, an addition of 445,000 Republicans to the rolls and 224,000 Democrats. Now, that's a drop in the bucket compared to Biden's actual lead in these states. But it does indicate that Trump's ground game has paid some dividends. What do you think is happening in that Texas 23 race? I understand the South Florida numbers. There's obviously a huge cultural allergy to the word socialism and the Democrats just did not, in my view, get in there hard enough, fast enough, and just seeded the socialism argument and let Joe Biden get pinned with that in South Florida. But what's going on in Texas 23? I mean, it's a very different Hispanic voter. Look, if, if Joe Biden were doing as well with Texas's Hispanics as Obama did in 2012, he would be tied or winning Texas right now. I think he's down two or three points, perhaps. 
but he's certainly you know going gangbusters in the major metro suburbs of Texas. But in the 23rd district, the Hispanic vote in South Texas is a more rural vote, and it's culturally different than uh, the Hispanic vote in DFW or in Houston or Austin. And so you know it doesn't just matter what a voter's ethnicity is; it also matters what kind of information ecosystem they're living in, whether they're in a more rural e- information ecosystem or one that's being driven by larger media outlets in major metro Texas. And look, it's been a dramatic transformation that now over two thirds of the state's vote is cast in, in metro areas with more than a million people. But the best bang for the buck for Biden and for any outside group in Texas right now would be Spanish language media in South Texas. That's really fascinating. It'd be, you know, wild if we ended up losing Texas narrowly. And it's not because of the white vote. It's because of the Hispanic vote margin. When you look at the race right now, and of course, we look at the numbers and look at the data, but, you know, politics isn't all data and numbers, right? There's still an intuition that matters, right? A feel for where this is going. And it's an experiential business. And I I just, you know, my spidey senses are this is now in collapse. The walls are coming down around Trump, around the Senate majority. This is, oh shit, we're a big trouble time. Tell me if I'm wrong on that. Well, I think we're all snake bit from 2016, uh, myself included. At the same time, when you're, you're looking dispassionately at the data, it's really, really difficult to find a pathway back for, for the president. And look, most Republicans we've spoken with acknowledge as much in the past uh, month. Trump would need a little bit of everything to get back in the game. He would need an extraordinary mobilization of whites without college degrees, but he would also need to win a higher share of them because right now the polls we're seeing indicate that Biden has narrowed that gap by about six or seven points from 2016. The final polls in 16 had Trump leading non college whites by 29. Right now, he's up on average by 23 in September's polls. And if you only take the polls that we've seen so far in October, Biden's narrowed that gap back into the teens. So, you know, that is not nearly what Trump needs. And there are two groups where Trump would really need to recover closer to his uh, 2016 numbers to have any kind of chance. And those are blue collar women and seniors. And we kind of saw Trump make this ham-handed effort in a video with a green screen from the White House lawn. He looked more like a reverse mortgage pitch man to me than a candidate who is earnestly trying to understand what senior voters are looking for in this election. Regeneron. Uh, Right. And then with regards to blue collar women, we tend to underestimate the number of women in the upper Midwest who voted for Trump, but who are also pro-choice and who do not want to see Roe overturned, and who do not want to see the ACA repealed in full. And Democrats won a number of those voters back in 2018. Biden is doing well with those blue-collar women today. And Trump, really, all he can offer is kind of this law and order message that only appeals to, from what we've seen in the polling, uh, white men without college degrees. And that's not enough. It's so bizarre, David. You just mentioned that there may not be a pathway for Trump, but if there is, it's a narrow one and it takes precision and really uh, just excellent execution. And it is just bizarre. I mean, you know, he's kind of a spray tan drug addled pitchman for a drug on the South Lawn. He's on Hannity talking about tiny fish in California and tiny windows 
we've never seen someone close this bizarrely. And so that's to Steve's point. There's the data and then there's the common sense that when someone's behind in a race, our experience is the only time they pull out miracles is when they just have an amazing last two to three weeks. To Steve's point, if the walls really are collapsing and Biden's able to pick up another two to three points in these states, I mean, are we looking at he could be close to 400 electoral votes? And I guess conversely, if Trump somehow were to close the race, not what he needs, but by two to three points, does that mean Biden's still north of 270, but we're probably talking somewhere between 270 to 300 electoral votes? Yeah. You know, when you plug in the demographic splits today, Biden is not far away from 400 electoral college votes. He'd need Texas to be in his column for that to happen. And right now, uh, I, you know, he's still a few points shy, even though his national polling is great. But there's not much distance between a blowout in the electoral college and a very close electoral margin. We're talking about a realignment underway where I think Democrats have just as good a shot at winning Arizona now as they do uh, some of those upper Midwestern states. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more from Dave Wasserman. Welcome back to Battleground. We're talking to Dave Wasserman, the House Editor for the Cook Political Report. I would say maybe four to six weeks ago, the conventional wisdom from those that studied data carefully was Pennsylvania seemed to be the battleground state that Trump was overperforming the most in. And I think people in the Biden campaign also were seeing, you know, Trump with some outside strength outside of Pittsburgh in particular, some of those exurban counties. Now it seems both based on polling and when you talk to people in Pennsylvania, they've seen a shift there that Pennsylvania has actually opened up for Biden. What do you think's happened there? Look, I think in general, the state level polling is quite noisy and we tend to get carried away when we see a result on a given day that says, oh, well, maybe now this state's jumped ahead of, of the other state. In reality, I think Wisconsin, Michigan and Pennsylvania are probably somewhere similar uh, in terms of a of Biden lead between you know five and seven points in that range. But in Pennsylvania, we are seeing Biden really pound the pavement not in terms of a ground operation, but in terms of a train tour in some of the non-metro areas where Democrats at least need to have a pulse. And although Pittsburgh and Philadelphia hog the spotlight, there are two regions of the state that aren't getting as much attention that I think are really important. Ground zero might be Erie, uh, Pennsylvania, uh, and places like it where you've got a big blue collar vote. It's a union town. It's a place that voted comfortably, as you well know, for President Obama twice and flipped to Trump. I think a 20-point swing, right? Or 18-point swing. Yeah. It wasn't, yeah. And there have been a couple polls done by Mercyhurst College that show that Biden's in the lead narrowly there. Republicans I've spoken with who are familiar with polling in that district uh, say that Biden is ahead in Erie County. I think he's likely to be there sometime in the next few weeks. And then the other part of the state that I'd point out is central Pennsylvania and the Harrisburg area. We're seeing a growing professional population of voters in that area, Hershey Medical Centers there. And you've got a congressional race in the 10th district where we've seen in the last month, Biden's numbers really pop. And that's a district that is important for Democrats to pick up because it could potentially give them the majority of the delegation in Pennsylvania in their nightmare scenario of an electoral college tie. I don't think it'll come down to that, but that's a region where Biden could really break through. You know, one unique aspect of Pennsylvania, uh, I should say, 
is the non-college white potential there for Trump is a little bit higher than it is in, say, Wisconsin. By my math, there were 2.4 million eligible non-college whites who did not show up to vote in Pennsylvania in 2016. And that's who Trump is trying to register and turn out. You know, 1.7 million in Michigan, about 900,000 in Wisconsin. But Trump's not winning those voters by enough percentage-wise for a higher turnout to make a difference. In the last four years, uh, whites without a college degree have declined by three points as a share of the eligible electorate nationwide. They've declined by three points in pretty much all these states. So just to offset that decline, Trump has got to boost their turnout from 55, where I'd estimate it was in 16, to 60 points just to offset the decline. Right. So let's talk about some of the sort of outer ring states uh, that are in play this time. Georgia. My personal view in Georgia is it's going to be really close, but we may come up a point short. Maybe we won't. And so the question is, what do you think is going to happen in Georgia this election? And we just saw a very close gubernatorial race in 18 that you could argue voter suppression cost uh, Stacey Abrams that race. Is Georgia now going to be a core battleground state? And do you see any evidence that perhaps in 28, by 2832, it becomes like a Virginia, something that is more often blue than not? Georgia, when you compare it with Florida, it's moving towards Democrats at a faster rate, clearly. Demographically, there's a lot to like about it for Democrats because Republicans are pretty maxed out on rural whites. It's not a growing population and they can't really possibly win much more of it. And you've got this massive shift obviously underway in the suburbs and frankly, a return of, of uh, Northern African-Americans to Georgia, which has made the state less white. But we tend to focus a ton on Metro Atlanta and, and we should, but we also should talk about black turnout in South Georgia and uh, in other parts of the state. Because when I looked at the voter file and looked at some of the shifts from 12 to 16, the Bellwether County that I identified in my op-ed in the Times this week was Peach County, which is outside of Macon. It's home to the Bluebird Bus Corporation. You've seen a lot of those school buses. And it's home to the two largest peach packing houses in the state. Black turnout in 2012 there was 73%, and Obama carried the county. Uh, black turnout in 2016 plummeted to 54%, and Trump won the county by, I want to say, about 900 votes. So. That's the type of place where I'll be looking to see, does Kamala Harris really gin up enthusiasm for voting, not just in metro Atlanta, but also in rural Georgia, where there's a lot of growth potential for turnout? Right. So, Dave, it does sound like Georgia, you think, is going to be close. You're not saying maybe it's one of the core six, but it's, it's real. How about Ohio and Iowa? Okay, two states that, shit, man, I felt like I was running for, you know, that we were running for governor of Ohio, uh, both in eight and 12. They were... Uh, certainly our tipping point state. They were the one that were called in both uh, of those races, as Steve remembers well. Iowa, yeah, there was some unique strength to Obama there, but it is the state that had the biggest shift in terms of counties from Obama to Trump. I think a third of their 99 counties went Obama-Trump. So what are you seeing in those states? I mean, it seems to me, Georgia, you've got a lot more potential with African-American voters. You've got a lot of people moving from the north to the south. Iowa and Ohio, there's less of that. But clearly, Biden is showing real strength with suburban voters. And some of those rural exurban counties, he may not get Obama levels, but he's clearly putting them in the range that either of those states now look like. I mean, I'd still probably bet on Trump in Ohio and maybe Iowa narrowly, but I think they've become close. What's your assessment of those two states? 
if Biden's winning Iowa and Ohio, he's already won Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. They're so right. similar in their demographic characteristics that they're going to move together, not exactly, but we can be pretty sure that they're going to be moving in a similar direction. And so, you know, those aren't going to be the tipping point states. They would be more likely to be Biden's 350th electoral college votes. But of the two, between Iowa and Ohio, I think Iowa has potentially more upside for Biden. And the reason is that Kim Reynolds' approval rating as governor there today is 26%. The Republican brand is just in a very different place in Iowa than it was in 16 or 18. And we're also seeing Joni Ernst underperform Trump on the ticket. And look, there are a lot, we talked about those blue collar women earlier. There are a lot of Trump voters who do not like conventional Republicans, who do not like Mitch McConnell and what they would agree is part of the swamp. They hired Trump to try and drain both the Democratic and Republican swamp in their view. One of the things we did at the beginning of the Lincoln Project is when baseball didn't look like it was going to go, we went and hired a bunch of baseball statisticians who were unemployed. And I went into politics because of my lack of mathematical skill and never thought that um, one day it would be the central requirement right, <laughs> to, to, to run campaigns. But um, we see real causality between spike in COVID infection rates and strains on states and the hospital systems and movement in the polls. And so if you look at where Iowa is today with its COVID infection rate, that there should be very significant downward pressure on Trump's poll numbers and Ernst's poll numbers peaking in 10 to 11 days from now. And you look now, it's an amalgam of everything, right? It's like in one week's time, we, we saw Trump exposed as a tax cheat who paid $750 in taxes. The debate performance was completely unhinged. We have the infection. We have the joy ride around Walter Reed. So, I mean, there's so much of this stuff happening so fast. You can't establish causality, right, between the polling collapse necessarily in any one thing as opposed to the accumulation. But our point of view has always been, if the race is about COVID, it's terrible for Trump. And in a lot of these states right now, those numbers are peaking and getting out of control, reinforced by the total chaos around the White House. In Iowa and Wisconsin are two of those states where those numbers are are getting to very, very dangerous territories again. Yeah. And look, the focus on COVID is devastating for Trump. Uh, Democrats have to be very careful so as not to appear to be, you know, cheering on statistics of the obvious human toll. But I do think that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris have taught a masterclass on letting your opponent self-destruct in the past couple of weeks. They have stuck to messages that keep the spotlight on Trump and his handling of this. And, you know, one other kind of thought that comes to mind when I think of a state like Iowa is the political trajectory of Jesse Ventura between 1998 and 2002. You know, I, I think there are two types of voters who voted for uh, people like Jesse Ventura and Donald Trump. The first was, you know, kind of a, a politically alienated voter who hates teleprompter politicians and wanted to hire an entertainer to keep things exciting and shake things up. 
and those voters have gotten what they wanted. But the other type of voter was someone who believed that the capital was dysfunctional, that here was this person who is a total outsider and not beholden to either political party, that they were actually going to burn the place down and start from scratch and, and get deals done and govern in a competent manner. What they saw from Jesse Ventura was someone who got into a lot of fights with the media, didn't get anything done on a bipartisan basis budget-wise, and took a lot of time off work to do color commentary for XFL games. That type of voter feels, I think, the same way about Donald Trump today. Stick around. We'll be right back with Dave Wasserman. We're back and talking to Dave Wasserman from the Cook Political Report. All right, Dave, let's move to the battle for the Senate. Uh, Take us around the country and what you're seeing in these Senate races. The way I look at it, you know, Democrats' path to 50 is Arizona, Colorado, Maine, probably North Carolina at this point, although it's a close call with Iowa. The second tier, I would put Montana, South Carolina, Iowa, and both Senate races in Georgia. Although, uh, you know, I think out of those, Iowa and South Carolina stand out to me as Democrats' best opportunities in that tier right now. What about Kansas? Kansas is not just the Kansas City suburbs. The challenge for Democrats is, you know, the first district and rural Kansas is also going to be voting here. And to elect a Democrat at the federal level in Kansas is just, in my opinion, still an extraordinary lift. What are you thinking in South Carolina? How are you looking at that race? Well, you know, across the Sun Belt, one pattern that we've seen is as more moderate suburban voters have moved into the Democratic column. The Republican base that's left is extreme, and that turns off even more suburban voters. So it's a vicious cycle. Jamie Harrison's currently up six points, and then the Democrat Joe Cunningham is now up 13 over Nancy Mace, the Republican. So we're seeing this in suburbs of Charleston. We're seeing it in the suburbs of Columbia, and especially in the South Charlotte suburbs of York County, South Carolina. That's a key area where Harrison's money advantage has been able to really overpower Lindsey Graham in a place where there are a lot of suburban voters. What about in Arizona with Kelly and McSally? That race over? Yeah, I think Arizona and Colorado are both pretty much wrapped at this point. In Martha McSally's case, I think we are pretty confident at this point that that race is over, uh, in part because Mark Kelly has a good story and no voting record to attack. You know, North Carolina is a more complicated race right now. And we've, you know, we've seen Tillis, Tillis's number has consistently been below Trump's. But, you know, we're going to have to wait and see over the next couple of weeks what impact recent news has had. And look, in Maine, Susan Collins's problem is that she's a terrible fit for an era of base politics. She's alienated Trump voters by refusing to endorse him twice. And she's alienated Democrats by voting to confirm Kavanaugh and voting to acquit him in the Senate trial. So, you know, you can't really cobble together 50% like that anymore. You generate more enemies than you win friends when you break with the party or go back and forth. And so, you know, this, this lack of principles message that's being driven home against Republican senators, not just Collins, but also Graham, is something that's working with independents. Dave, it's been great getting your view of where things stand. Uh, But before we let you go, uh, you've got this amazing spreadsheet where you track the popular vote uh, that I've become uh, addicted to in past elections. You've got some other tools. Tell us uh, how people can utilize some of what you built to get even smarter about the election. 
Yeah, I'm just a numbers junkie. And so I keep this spreadsheet in every election of uh, the vote totals as, as states and counties adjust them. And, you know, we weren't done counting the vote until June of 2017, I want to say, when New York issued its final amended revision to the 2016 results. So, you know, when people complain about there being a slow count, it's kind of always been that way, but that's been the secret of politics is that it takes time uh, to accurately verify and, and count the ballots. And how can people access that document? Search Wasserman Spreadsheet or National Popular Vote Tracker. I'm pretty sure it'll still pop up. Awesome. I'm obsessed with it. So still to this day. My latest uh, project, the 2020 Swingometer, uh, allows you to go into uh, each of these demographic groups we've been talking about and adjust turnout and vote share and see what impact it might have on the map. So that's my latest gadget. Well, there's a lot of bedwetting Democrats that are using it because I hear from them who come up with these crazy scenarios about how Trump can win and want to see if I think it's right. So I want to thank you for that service, but also you need to apologize because Democrats can, you know, well, what if Trump gets 83%? It's like, guys, it ain't going to happen. But anyway, <laughs> it's, it's an awesome tool. Thank you very much. Well, Dave, thanks so much for spending some time with us today. That was great. Learned a lot. And uh, it's going to be an incredible closing month here in this campaign. We'll never see anything like it again, I hope, but um, it, it's going to be a wild ride. Yeah, Dave, thank you for what you do for all of us that are paying attention to this race. Yeah, and uh, we're going to be swimming in numbers. But as uh, Charlie Cook, my boss, says, stay positive and test negative. Thanks again to Dave Wasserman for being here with us. Aaliyah Jackson and D. Scott Carroll engineered this podcast. Allie Rogers is our associate producer. And Christian Castro-Wissell is our executive producer. 